Hello, and welcome to Alert, radio for people who want to change the world. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. On this special episode of Alert, with a major act of civil disobedience devoted to tar sands resistance scheduled for September 26th in Ottawa, we speak to three people who have employed and endorsed resistance to the tar sands industry and other causes. Environmentalist and Indigenous activist Clayton Thomas Muller, Greenpeace climate and energy campaigner Mike Hudima, and Sudbury-based author and activist Gary Kinsman. Here are the alert headlines for September 22, 2011. Hundreds rallied last week in support of the Simon Fraser Student Society staff who have been locked out since July 10th. Speakers at the rally urged the Student Society's Board of Directors to formally return to the bargaining table so student services could be restored to the university. The Student Society argues they are running a dangerous deficit and risk going bankrupt. The board's most recent offer maintained wages for current employees, but reduced wages for future employees by 40%. Protesters began occupying Wall Street last Saturday with the intent of staying their ground until they feel the point has been made that they will no longer tolerate the greed and corruption of the 1%. This demonstration was inspired by the Arab Spring, according to the website of the movement Occupy Wall Street. Food, blankets, and space heaters are being made available to protesters to encourage a lengthy stay. Millions of public sector workers in the UK may stage a massive general strike starting November 30th. Last week, Unison, Unite and the GMB, the three largest trade unions in the country, announced they will ballot their members to decide whether industrial action should be taken against the government's pension reforms. Many other unions are following suit, which may result in more than three million workers on strike this winter. Those balloted for action include police, firefighters, health workers and teachers. On Monday... Toronto Mayor Rob Ford backed down on many of his proposed budget cuts after a 20-hour executive committee meeting. Most notably, the committee voted against library closures, which received significant public opposition when previously announced. Late-night TTC buses, snow plowing, and community grants were also not cut. The status of the remaining proposed cuts will be decided during the 2012 budget process. Around 60,000 people gathered in Meiji Park in Tokyo on the weekend to protest the use of nuclear power in Japan. While Japan's newly elected prime minister said the country should start exploring alternative energy sources, he will still restart reactors that clear safety checks. The tsunami that hit Japan in March caused meltdowns at three reactors, the worst nuclear incident since Chernobyl. Before the tsunami, the country relied on nuclear power for 30% of its electricity. Police in Haiti used tear gas to try and break up a group of protesters demanding the UN leave the country. The protest was sparked by outrage over the alleged sexual assault of a young Haitian man by UN peacekeepers. This incident is yet another criticism of the UN's involvement in Haiti. They have also been criticized for excessive use of force. The UN mission mandate in Haiti expires next month, and it is expected that Haitian President Michel Martelly will ask for renewal. Those were the alert headlines. 
Now for Around the Left for the week of September 22, 2011. Canadians for Justice and Peace in the Middle East invite you to join the Boycott Israel campaign to pressure Israel to respect human rights and cease its occupation of Palestinian land. Each month, the campaign focuses on one consumer target and one cultural target. For September 2011, the campaign is targeting Canadian Tire, which sells products from a company that manufactures in some illegal Israeli colonies, and the Swedish music duo Roxette, who are performing in Tel Aviv in October. To find out more, visit cjpme.org. In Vancouver, the W2 Media Cafe will be presenting Defending Mother Earth from Cochabamba to Turtle Island. This information evening will take place September 23rd from 7.30 p.m. to 9.30 p.m. and will feature artists, speakers, food, and drink. The Word on the Street is a cross-Canada festival celebrating literacy and the written word. This year, Word on the Street will take place on Sunday, September 25th in Lethbridge, Saskatoon, Kitchener, Toronto, and Halifax, and from Friday, September 23rd to Sunday, September 25th in Vancouver. Festival times and events vary by location. The public is invited to participate in hundreds of author events, presentations, and workshops, and to browse the marketplace for books and magazines. If you are in or near Toronto, visit the Canadian Dimension booth and chat with associate publisher James Patterson and some CD Collective members. To find out more details about the Word on the Street Festival in your area, visit www.thewordonthestreet.ca. The Winnipeg Radical Book Fair and DIY Fest will take place September 23rd to 25th at various locations in the Exchange District with the panel keynote and fundraising show to take place at 91 Albert Street. For information on specific workshops and info sessions, check out winnipegbookfair.blogspot.com. On September 26th at 5.30 p.m., come to the Rally for Toronto. People from every walk of life will be coming to City Hall to rally outside the City Council meeting, demanding respect for every Torontonian, our communities and our public services, and good jobs. Email rallyfortoronto at gmail.com to connect with local initiatives in your area or check out facebook.com slash respecttoronto. Recovery from the 2010 earthquake in Haiti is slow and lacks effective coordination. What has Canada contributed to relief? What can Canadians do to help? In Winnipeg on September 26th from 7 p.m. to 9 p.m., come to the Mondragon Book Café to listen to the report of a 2011 delegation to Haiti to find out what they have learned and discuss an action plan. Speakers include Delegation Director Roger Annis of the Canada-Haiti Action Network and Sandy Gessler of the Winnipeg-Haiti Solidarity Group and UM Faculty of Nursing. For more information, email contact at whsg.com. On September 26th, Tar Sands Action invites you to come to Ottawa to join a historic, peaceful act of civil disobedience to oppose the Tar Sands. Tell the Harper government that you don't support its agenda and want Canada to turn away from the toxic tar sands industry. If you are interested and willing to take action, email ottawaaction at gmail.com or go to www.ottawaaction.ca to sign up. The fourth annual Toronto-Palestine Film Festival runs from September 30th to October 7th, 2011. 
For information on films, times, and venues, go to tpff.ca. On October 6th, the war in Afghanistan begins its second decade. Also on October 6, 2011, thousands will begin the occupation of Freedom Plaza in Washington, D.C. to stop the machine and create a new world. Will you join the October 2011 coalition in this non-violent protest against the corporate and military machine? To sign the pledge or to help spread the word, check out October2011.org. Canadian Dimension Collective member Saul Landau's new film, Will the Real Terrorist Please Stand Up, will be having its Canadian premiere at this year's Vancouver International Film Festival. The only Cuba-related film at the festival, it will be screening on Wednesday, October 5th, Friday, October 7th, and Tuesday, October 11th. The director will be present at the first two screenings for a Q&A session. A description of the film, details of the screenings, and online ticket sales can be found at www.viff.org slash festival. That's all for Around the Left for the week of September 22, 2011. To start off our examination of political resistance through peaceful civil disobedience to tar sands and other threats, Alert spoke with environmentalist and indigenous activist Clayton Thomas Muller. Clayton Thomas Muller is presently active with Defenders of the Land and the Tar Sands Campaigner for the Indigenous Environment Network, one of the groups sponsoring Monday's action on Parliament Hill. We'll speak with him about the role of indigenous organizations in the resistance movements. Clayton, could you... Tell us a little bit more about the Indigenous Environmental Network and Defenders of the Land and and what distinguishes them from uh, other environmental organizations. Yeah, um, well, I mean, Defenders of the Land obviously is a new initiative um, in a in or a new a new play, I guess, in what has been a you know a very long long game in terms of uh, you know non-native and native relationships here in in this country they call Canada. But essentially, Defenders of the Land was created, you know, to to provide a forum for the most radical land-based struggles here in this country, you know, First Nations struggles, um, to come together and to really identify the needs for Indigenous, uh, for the Indigenous social movement in this country today, for right now, for this moment of time that we're living in. And so for the last three years, you know, we've been convening an annual gathering um, hosting monthly conference calls, um, set up a governance structure comprised of members of uh, frontline First Nations communities like Grassy Narrows, um, you know, uh, like many others across the country that have been engaged directly with the state over land disputes, you know, over asserting treaty rights, Aboriginal rights, uh, over asserting land claims. Um, and you know the whole the whole goal essentially has been to develop a grassroots uh, led base building strategy um, you know with our native people to you know really invigorate uh, you know a young generation and connect them with some veterans of the movement um, you know to you know make some serious moves forward uh, and to provide an alternative I think you know than what the current PTOs and NAOs and by PTO I mean provincial, territorial, uh, Aboriginal organizations and 
um, of course, our national Aboriginal organizations in Ottawa. Many of these organizations, it's the feeling of a lot of our grassroots people have become co-opted because of their arm's length uh, relationship with the federal government or the provincial governments uh, in, in the context of funding. And so many people feel that they have become unable to address some of the most critical issues on, uh, you know, that we're facing right now because of the potential for funding cuts and this sort of thing. Now, the Indigenous Environmental Network, um, you know, who I work for as their Tar Sands campaigner, uh, has been around, uh, you know, for about 20 years and um, is a, a national environmental justice network in the United States. However, our work and our focus is binational. Uh, in recent years, you know, we've really taken our work all across the planet um, you know, supporting indigenous communities to protect the sacredness of Mother Earth uh, from toxic contamination and corporate exploitation. And we do this through uh, grassroots-led strategies uh, around base building. Uh, we engage in civil disobedience. Um, and essentially, you know, our flagship program is our climate and energy program. And so we work with uh, tribes, Alaska Native Nations and First Nations from the North Slope of Alaska all the way to the Gulf Coast of Mexico, you know, fighting against the fossil fuel regime, fighting against the false solutions that are being put on the table by the U.S. government, and the Canadian government uh, to try and address climate change and really essentially fighting for climate and energy justice for our people. Um, and so, you know, both organizations share a, a relationship. IEN as a network is supporting Defenders of the Land. Many of the, the, the groups that are involved in Defenders are also affiliates uh, with the IEN network. And, um, you know, the, the relationship continues to grow and deepen. Could you talk about the, uh, the Tar Sands campaign uh, in particular? Uh, when you uh, maybe expand a little bit on uh, what uh, IEN and Defenders of the Land, you mentioned civil disobedience, what they've been doing in particular to uh, advance the cause of, of frustrating tar sands development. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the tar sands campaign with IEN is, is part of our Native Energy and Climate Program. It's, uh, you know, I'm one, of, I'm one of five staffers spread out across the continent supporting frontline communities. Um, you know, fighting against big oil. And, um, of course, uh, you know, we started about four and a half years ago um, at the invitation of, uh, you know, one of the families in Fort, in Fort Chippewan. And, um, you know, we were able to, uh, to visit at their request uh, Fort Chippewan and to really get a sense of the, the in immense impacts that downstream communities are facing as a result of living uh, so near the proximity of the world's largest construction project. Um, and since that point, you know, we've been directly engaged, um, you know, with Fort Chippewan uh, as our primary relationship, but also with dozens of other um, tribal communities that are that are also impacted by this massive project. Um, and really just initiating, you know, action camps, trainings, uh, lobby trips, you know, whether it's to D.C. or to the Hill here in Canada and Ottawa, um, bringing, you know, community voices all the way up to the halls of the United Nations and the international climate negotiations to really exert a tremendous amount of pressure on the Canadian government over its energy policy and the impacts that that policy has had, the human rights impacts that that policy has had on local communities in, the, in terms of, uh, you know, loss of food security, loss of access to traditional hunting, fishing grounds, um, 
and uh, you know just the the cancer clusters that so many communities in northern Alberta are now um, you know having like Fort Chippewan for example has uh, you know over the last decade lost over a hundred of its 1200 citizens um, to rare forms of cancer and autoimmune deficiencies which science independent science commissioned by the community has proven is directly linked to you know the tar sands which of course industry and government have uh, been investing millions of dollars into trying to deny and so um, you know that work um, has continued uh, you know to grow and expand and the international movement against the tar sands has uh, you know really um, gained a lot of speed and I think that's where Defenders of the Land comes in is Defenders uh, you know, there are members from tar sands impacted communities, uh, not just on the front line of extraction, but also from pipeline impacted communities that are attached to the tar sands that are, you know, um, engaging with other communities that in some instances are fighting the same damn companies. So um, I was wondering if you could tell, maybe give us a, a couple of uh, specific examples about what you yourself have done. I mean, you mentioned like, I, I, if I heard you correctly, both a, a sort of an interacting with the community there's a civil disobedience aspect there's also a lobbying component so maybe you could maybe give us a, a couple of examples of uh, those uh, aspects yeah i mean you know the, the the campaign itself is is actually quite sophisticated it's very uh, it's multi-pronged in design and it has to be i mean you know it, the, the tar sands is, is is the world's biggest mobilization of workers for one project Seventy-seven thousand workers you know, working over an expanse of land in the Athabasca region that's roughly the size of England and Wales combined. And, um, you know, so it's billions of dollars in capital have gone in already with more coming from, from all kinds of international markets. So we've had to really um, split up our resources in terms of, you know, supporting frontline communities with education strategies that are popular uh, in design. Um, you know, we do a lot of action camps with communities um, to train up new spokespersons, um, you know, with different skill shares. And, and, you know, we do a lot of nonviolent direct action training in communities, um, you know, so that communities can use uh, nonviolent direct action in their toolkit, um, you know, when they're trying to punch holes in the mainstream media and get their voice heard. Um, we've had a lot of success um, in our financial campaign. Uh, targeting European-based financial institutions and financial institutions here in Canada as well that are invested in the tar sands to try and track where the money's coming from and to try and cut it off um, at source. We've been meeting with uh, a lot of international investment firms um, who manage uh, institutional shareholders like uh, unions, um, some of the biggest unions on the planet, some of the biggest uh, pension funds on the planet, you know, who are big shareholders in European-based oil companies like BP and Shell, uh, and France's oil giant Total, and Norway's Stat Oil, who all are operating in the tar sands. And we've been really effective at raising the stakes in terms of the risks associated to operating in the tar sands, um, and the risks that are posed by, you know, direct intervention by First Nations, you know, through uh, Canada's legal institutions or through other means like civil disobedience. Well, we'll talk about that whole issue of when you're addressing these international fi financial investors. <clears throat> what What is it that, that tends to uh, bring them on to your uh, viewpoint? Is is it the concern that, that, that you're appealing, pulling at their heartstrings, or is it more a matter of... Uh, you know, concerns about they might pot potentially be uh, losing investment or, or just practical 
concerns related to civil disobedience. Uh, how, how do you uh, how, how do you approach those uh, particular entities? Well, it depends. You know, I think that it's a mix of of all the things that you described. Uh, I think the I think what you know, uh, banking institutions and you know, just find the financial sector response to the most is the straight economics. You know, what they're concerned about is project delays, project stoppages, um, you know, project cancellations. And, you know, so part of what we've been, you know, um, talking to them about is, of course, impending climate policy, which will come down eventually in this country, um, which, of course, will set a price to carbon and drive up the cost of operating in the tar sands because it's the most carbon intensive industry on the planet. Um, the other thing that we talk about, of course, is Canada's rapidly changing legal landscape and the emergence of, you know, precedent setting cases around duty to consult with First Nations, um, the Haida Gwaii decision, uh, you know, um, the, the Dalgamook decision, um, you know, the recent Grassy Narrows decision uh, that happened the other day. Um, every single day we are gaining traction within Canada's legal framework. Uh, as First Nations peoples and Aboriginal rights is such a gray area. So one of the things that we've been trying to convey to the financial sector is that there are serious liabilities to investing in projects uh, on disputed lands, which of course is the large majority of this country. We've been speaking with Indigenous activist and environmentalist Clayton Thomas Muller. This interview was part of a longer conversation which will be printed in the November issue of Canadian Dimension magazine. Punishing Regime, Criminal Justice in Canada. Look for the September issue of Canadian Dimension on the newsstands. It's a special issue featuring six articles on Canada's criminal justice system. Stephen Harper's approach to crime is not only medieval, it's also costly and ineffective. Pick up this special issue of Canadian Dimension and read about alternative approaches. Also, what's really behind Stephen Harper's love affair with Israel? Freelance journalist Eve Engler has some answers. All this and much more in the September issue of Canadian Dimension magazine. On September 26th, there's going to be a major peaceful act of civil disobedience in Ottawa on Parliament Hill. And this concerns the tar sands and a controversial pipeline that's uh, being directed into the United States. Joining me on the line is one of the organizers of this action. His name is Mike Hudema. He is with the, uh, he's the Climate Justice Campaigner for Greenpeace Canada. So welcome to Alert, Mike. Thanks. It's good to be here. Okay, Mike, could you maybe uh, fill us in with a little, uh, a few of the details about this action that uh, you are helping to organize? For sure. Well, that action really uh, comes out uh, and was inspired by uh, similar actions that uh, have already taken place in Washington, D.C. And from August 20th to September 3rd, uh, over 1,200 people uh, went to the White House uh, in actions that took place every single day uh, against a very controversial tar sands uh, Keystone XL pipeline that would be constructed from Alberta all the way down to to Texas and would go over one of the largest uh, aquifers in the United States, the drinking supply of millions of people within uh, the U.S., and also the main water supply for the agricultural industry in the, the U.S. 
Uh, and so people went to Washington from all 50 states. Uh, they sat in front of the White House. Uh, they risked arrest and their, their personal freedoms to convey a message to Obama and a, a send a reminder to uh, President Obama that they wanted a, a clean, just, energy future, uh, and they wanted him to turn away from the tar sands and say no to the pipeline. So on September 26, we are going to do something similar uh, in Ottawa. Uh, and so we are asking people, and already people from right across the country from coast to coast to coast are planning on making the journey uh, to, again, participate in a, a civil disobedience sit-in uh, in Ottawa in Parliament to convey a, a very direct message to our Prime Minister that we want him to turn away from the tar sands and start building a clean, just energy future that respects Indigenous rights, respects treaty rights, and that prioritizes the health of our communities and the health of our environment. Okay, so what we're talking about is a sit-in that you're organizing? Yeah, it will be a, a civil disobedience sit-in on Parliament Hill. Uh, our goal is to walk through the front doors of Parliament, uh, to sit down in a, a very peaceful uh, action uh, with members uh, from right across Canada, from all different age ranges, uh, to convey that message of the type of future that we want, that we want uh, the Prime Minister to stop blocking solutions and a move to a clean energy economy, a move to respect treaty and Indigenous rights, and that we want him to start saying no to the tar sands because of how destructive those projects are, both environmentally and in, from a human rights perspective as well. Mike, could you tell us uh, which organizations and, and individuals uh, will be prominent in this action? Well, the action itself, the original call-out was put out by the Council of Canadians, Indigenous Environmental Network, and Greenpeace Canada. But since then, it's been endorsed by over 15 organizations right across Canada, and then several prominent Canadian voices as well. And so everybody from people like... Maud Barlow, uh, to Tony Clark, who will be participating in the action and uh, is willing to, to risk arrest himself, uh, to people like Dr. Danny Harvey, who is one of the people who uh, helped write uh, some of the reports for the International Panel on uh, Climate Change, uh, to prominent lawyers like Clayton Ruby, uh, to uh, celebrity voices. And we just put out a release today of nine prominent uh, Canadian celebrities, including uh, Graham Greene and Peter Callahan, uh, that have also uh, endorsed the action and added the weight of their uh, voices to, to say no to this uh, very destructive tar sands industry. Okay, and uh, many of these individuals are themselves willing to, w to risk arrest, you're saying? Um, there are some that will be uh, with us in Ottawa, and then some that are just uh, lending their support, and for various scheduling reasons, uh, aren't able to make the, the trip, but believe that the action itself is, is one that we need to take. That, you know, if we look at the history of our rights, a lot of them came about uh, through uh, civil disobedience and people willing to risk their own freedoms to push for something uh, bigger than themselves. And when we talk about a problem like the climate crisis that threatens uh, the viability of life on this planet, uh, there is no uh, greater threat. And so uh, some of those people will be joining us uh, in Ottawa for sure to, to convey that message and tackle one of the biggest problems to uh, climate uh, movement in Canada, which is the tar sands. Mm. Now, 
Greenpeace uh, had uh, been associated with an action on Parliament Hill uh, not too long ago in which a banner was hung off the roof, and it did manage to get national and international headlines. Uh, but uh, I, I'm not aware of it uh, having had uh, a significant impact on, on this uh, prime minister. So why would you believe that uh, uh, you know, this, uh, uh, this civil disobedience will have any more of an impact? Well, I think for for a few different reasons. I think, uh, you know, the first is, again, looking at the history of our rights. And if you look at everything from the the eight-hour workday to uh, women's rights to vote to the civil rights movement, uh, all of those involved uh, good people willing to to risk arrest, willing to risk their own freedoms uh, to push for a greater justice. And I think when we're talking about climate justice and we're talking about the climate crisis, which is devastating uh, and displacing millions of people all over the world today. Uh, and those numbers are just going to keep growing the longer that our leaders delay action. Uh, there is no greater urgency, uh, in my mind, than addressing mm-hmm. that crisis. And, and when you look at the tar sands fight, you look at you know, massive amounts of, of money. Uh, you know, you, you're looking at the biggest oil companies on the face of the planet. You're looking at an Alberta government that has given up its responsibility to protect the health of its citizens, a federal government that has given up uh, its responsibility uh, when it comes to ensuring that uh, the waterways are safe, uh, its responsibilities to First Nation communities, uh, and has really uh, become a promoter for the tar sands industry. You know, that's the massive amount of capital, and those are the voices on the opposition. And the counterbalance to that uh, throughout history has always been uh, people and people willing to to risk arrest uh, to convey a message. And I, I don't think we're under any illusion that one single action is going to be uh, the turning point. But I think what we've seen, and especially within the tar sands fight, is we've seen a growth of a movement, and a movement that started with, you know, a few, a few voices and now has become uh, international in nature. And uh, two days before the Ottawa action will be actions all around the globe, uh, speaking out against the tar sands and speaking about the need uh, for addressing the climate crisis. And, and I think that's uh, part of the success that, that we've had so far, and I think that momentum is going to continue to build until our leaders finally uh, start listening to reason, start listening to the voices of the communities most directly impacted and being devastated well, you, uh, by tar sands industry and, and making the right decision. You talk about the leaders uh, listening. I mean, you you mentioned at the outset the, the, the protests in Washington in which over 1,200 people were arrested. And this is with a president who was elected in 2008, arguably with a, a strong uh, commitment, to, or at least a indebtedness to social and environmental justice uh, organizations and activists. I don't think the same could be said about Stephen Harper. As far as I could see, there's no evidence that uh, Mr. Obama is uh, that 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 these actions have pricked the conscience of the hope and change president. So what? Why? Why on earth would one expect anything different from a man like Stephen Harper? Well, I think that. Number one, I would say that we are starting to witness change within the United States. And we are seeing uh, not only uh, Democrats come out against the, the Keystone XL pipeline, but Republicans as well. And probably most uh, notably the governor of Nebraska, uh, who was a very strong conservative voice, but has come out against uh, uh, this pipeline. And I, th- I think the, 
you know, as it starts to potentially move forward, we're going to see more and more legal battles, and we're going to see uh, more uh, civil disobedience type action to try again to, to signal the, the direction that we need to move. Uh, you're right. Uh, you know, Prime Minister Harper is uh, very much uh, in bed in many ways with the oil industry. He's the son of a, a former oil CEO. Uh, and But I think that uh, one thing that uh, the government is vulnerable to uh, is international pressure. And I think the international reputation of Canada as an environmental steward, as an environmental leader, is starting to change because of uh, its single-minded focus on the tar sands. And the more that we can ramp up that international pressure and that domestic pressure, then the more that we have a chance of starting to get our government to, to make the right decisions. And in the meantime, we have to make those right decisions in our communities, and we need to continue to stand up against uh, devastating projects like this. Mike Hudema, I want to thank you very much for sharing those perspectives with us. We certainly look forward to the, uh, the momentous and perhaps historical events that uh, we'll be seeing in coming days. So thank you for your time. For sure. Anytime. Thanks a lot. Okay. And Mike Hudema is a climate and energy campaigner for Greenpeace Canada and uh, helping to organize the uh, civil disobedience actions around the tar sands in Ottawa on Monday, September 26th. Finally, we'll be speaking with author and activist Gary Kinsman. As we'll hear in this interview, Kinsman has thought a lot about the necessity of civil disobedience to raise awareness and attention to social and environmental justice causes. In this conversation recorded during the second international cop-watching conference held in Winnipeg, we delved into a discussion about resistance at the G20 in Toronto, the controversy around the Black Bloc, and police actions. One of the biggest uh, stories to come out of the, the G20, as far as the broader public is concerned at least, is the uh, the whole idea of the, the, the tactics employed by some of the protesters, which, and, and this has been, as you pointed out, I mean, people like Judy Rebick and Naomi Klein and others were, were critical of uh, the, the black bloc tactic and the way that uh, sort of overwhelmed the message that, you know, the, the, the concerns people had about the G20, all the peaceful, you know, protesters who weren't, you know, doing any direct action. Um, but I, I wonder, can you try to explain why it's hazardous to, uh, you know, criticize, say, the Black Bloc? And, uh, and and the kinds of arguments that this is you know, upsetting the whole the, the, the larger movement, if you will. Well, I mean, I think you've had a whole whole trend in sort of the moderate and social democratic left within Canada to try to distance itself from direct action protests. And I'm I'm talking here about much broader much broader set of activities and practices than just what is often referred to as the black bloc uh, tactic. Um, a real attempt to sort of suggest that. Uh, the forms of effective activism that are based on direct action, that is actually putting your body on the line, uh, trying to disrupt uh, power relations and authority relations, that somehow that's an inappropriate form of politics, when in, in many contexts it's actually the most effective form of organizing. Now, I do think there needs to be discussions of various tactics and strategies that people use, ranging from organizing symbolic uh, peaceful protests that 
um, you know, might just go around in a circle and from my vantage point aren't actually that effective. I mean, I, which I think are legitimate forms of protest for lots of people. Um, and there needs to be discussions about other types of strategies that people might engage in, including limited property destruction or tearing down fences or whatever it is that, that people are focused on. There needs to be those discussions, but we need to be able to have them in a way where we don't participate in stigmatizing or criminalizing other parts of our movement. And that's where this whole division of the movement between good and bad protesters that sometimes people fall into, I think, can be so counterproductive and destructive. It actually ends up weakening our movement. Um, and in some ways, it, it sometimes, um, it's sometimes a bit baffling to me that sort of the sections of the moderate and social democratic left don't realize that they actually can draw a lot of power from the more radical anti-capitalist parts of the movement. It doesn't necessarily mean that they need to agree with us, right? But that we exist and we're sort of more militant and pushing things forward actually can oftentimes create a better context for them to operate in. So I think that sometimes their attempts to sort of critique us as being the problem um, is quite misguided. I mean, the other thing is... Is there possibly, for, forgive me for is there a maybe historical example you could point to that uh, would help make the point that that radical activity, uh, if I'm paraphrasing, is it sort of creates an opening for the, the more moderates to uh, press their point forward? Well, I mean, just even think around the, think around the organizing in Quebec City in 2001. Um, I think that the, the more direct action organized uh, protests that were going forward actually created a context in which more people got mobilized, including more people who went on the NGO union-sponsored march. I think it created more of a buzz, more of an interest, and actually opened up more of a space for people to come out. I think that if you actually, I mean, just think about what would have happened at the G20 protests if there had not been a breakaway march trying to go to the fence. I'm sort of not specifically talking about the limited property destruction that took place. But just imagine if there hadn't been that. The type of media coverage that that so-called peaceful protest, symbolic protest would have got, would have been almost nil, right? So in a certain sense, um, it's the more, more radical, more activist, more spectacular uh, forms of protest that is actually going to capture some of the media attention. Um, and if those aren't taking place, then the more moderate social democratic stuff's not going to get much coverage either. Well, that comment suggests then that media attention is important. I think that mainstream media attention is important. It's certainly not the most important thing. The most important thing is to actually try to meet the objectives of what our various movements and organizations are trying to do. Uh, but certainly one of the things we want to do is to try to communicate to broader groups of people. Um, obviously, we need to develop our own media and media activism, but trying to even get moments of coverage in the mainstream media can, communi can communicate to far greater numbers of people than we're able to do through any other means. Even if that message gets distorted? Well, yeah, I mean, they distort our messages all the time, right? Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, like there's, the point a, there's a problem, it's a, obviously a major problem with the mainstream media, and we need to to try to combat those distortions. And obviously, but, I mean, but just look at, at the G20. It's the same in, in Seattle with the World Trade Organization, right? Hardly anyone even knew what the World Trade Organization was prior to the Seattle protests. The protests, especially the direct action protests, um, which included, you know, ended up after the repression came down, including property destruction, those brought many people's attention to what the World Trade Organization was, and many people started to learn more about it. I would actually say that even if the images that were put in the mainstream media were not the images that many people wanted to see of the protests, that more people learned about the G20. I mean, I was in Toronto for part of the 
demonstrations against the G20, but was also there about a week later. And it was really interesting just overhearing conversations on the subway where people basically were talking about how their city was occupied by the security police. Um, and regardless of what they thought about what, what, what uh, had happened in terms of windows being smashed or police cars uh, being set on fire, they actually had felt that their city had been violated. Um, and I think in, in some ways what you've seen over the last year in Toronto is that the, the media framing actually shifted from the smashed windows and the burning police cars to the incredible atrocities and brutality that the police engaged in against, uh, against, uh, against demonstrators at the time. And I think that's actually in the longer run. I mean, sometimes it's the longer run that you need to look at, not just like what happens immediately, but what happens in the longer run. In the mainstream media in Toronto, you actually have... Um, I mean, it's not the framework I would most uh, want to see there, but it's actually like that there was an incredible, the major story is there was a major violation of civil liberties at the G20, and we need, to, um, we need to investigate that, and we need to make sure it doesn't happen again. I mean, that's not the worst story to be being told. I mean, obviously, there's more that needs to be told, including how that police repression is actually the same type of repression that's going to be necessary to enforce the, the austerity agenda that actually came out of the G20 meetings. There's a lot more to be said, and also that that type of police violence is an everyday experience in racialized and um, excluded communities across the Canadian state. Okay. Um, just one last point, though. You know, there, there's been, you know, the movements do place an emphasis on major public demonstrations, but uh, if those public demonstrations uh, should include, a, as an ethical point or as a strategic point, we don't condemn bad protesters, the people that smash windows. But y if you're looking to expand your movement to incorporate some of the, uh, you know, I guess the the people who are relegated to working at Starbucks or or one of these other institutions who are having to work overtime because, you know, the, these activists came along. I mean, they. Are they less or more inclined to join your movement? I guess the point is, in the end, I mean, what what are the objectives, and what are the the, the concerns we might have about uh, actions that could alienate people from the movement? Because the movement should take precedence over the demonstration, right? Sure. I mean, I mean, our major objective has to be to build vibrant, sustainable movements for fundamental, radical social transformation. I mean, that's. Um, should be our overriding objective. It doesn't mean, though, that at certain points in time, certain groups, groups of people aren't getting going to be alienated. In fact, in some ways, if you look at Bertolt Brecht's work and other people's work, the alienation effect can actually be a profoundly radicalizing, transformative experience. I'm not saying it always is, and I'm not saying we should go out of our way to try to alienate people. That's not at all what I'm saying. But sometimes that experience can actually be a transformative moment uh, for people. Um, certainly... I think one of the things that came out of the Toronto protests from my discussions with community and social activists in Toronto is a much stronger coalition between various grassroots community groups. And that's largely held. It's not like it's splintered up and people went their different ways saying, oh, what happened to the G20? I just can't, can't stomach that, so I'm going my own way. Um, there's actually a pretty substantial coalition between anti poverty organizers, um, no one is illegal groups, refugee and immigrant rights group, a number of people of color organizations, and that coalition has largely held together. And that to me seems to suggest that there was something really good that came out of uh, the solidarity and the connections that were built uh, during 
uh, the protests and organizing before the G20 and since, obviously. But I mean, obviously, we've had to expend an incredible amount of energy defending people from the police repression that came down. And that obviously drains our energy, right? So it's not necessarily something we would have preferred. On the other hand, it's something we have to do. We have to be able to defend uh, people uh, from state attack and point out that if you are involved in activism, that you're going to get support. Well, uh, Gary Kitzman, I want to thank you very much for your insights, and uh, I wish you well on your way back to uh, Sudbury. Thank you very much. That's Gary Kinsman, the author of The Canadian War on Queers. He was one of the speakers at the second annual International Cop Watching Conference in Winnipeg. I'm Mitch Podolik, and this is Music is the Weapon. And true to my comment at the end of last week's show about how depressing it has been, I'm going to bring you some really interesting songs. And here's a couple of songs kind of about the new age. There's a thing that happens sometimes on the left uh, that I've noticed, you know, pretty much since the mid-70s or so. And that is there's these characters who have a real problem with language, you know. So instead of saying Nicaragua or Chile, they'll say Nicaragua or Chile when it comes up in sentence, you know, a little bit of Spanish to show how legitimate they are. It's kind of like the, the new age that I can't really stand. And, you know, every once in a while, somebody writes a song that expresses your feelings right down to the bottom of your bones. Here's Mark Graham with I Can See Your Aura. spiritual healing I'm in touch with all my feelings I've read palms and read the stars for kings and queens and I hate to bum you out but you have without a doubt the ugliest aura that this poor boy's ever seen cause I can see your aura and it's ugly your spirit must be rotten to the core And to a new age guy like me You just bring pain and misery So dear, I cannot love you Some life you lived before you murdered people by the score. Your evil is so totally complete. All good in you is gone. You are darkness with no dawn. Neither that door you are eating too much meat. Cause I can see your aura and it's ugly. Your spirit must be rotten to the core 
And to a new age guy like me, you just bring pain and misery. So dear, I cannot love you anymore. I had not taken acid for 12 years. But one night last summer I did. I was adrift in a bar room. Acting like a jerk and a kid. I knew we were asking for trouble. And trouble was what we would get. Five of us dropped in the girls' room. Psychedelicized insane quintet Well that bathroom got crowded in no time Our minds are all blown in one flash Everyone in there got ugly We exited out of there fast Back in the bar we were happy No problem, feel great Back in the bar we were fine Till Johnny turned into a Nazi And Mary threw up all her wine Well in no time we all were ejected Soon we were out on the street The sidewalk began to perspire We had glass and dog shit at our feet we went over to Mary's apartment To listen to the Grateful Dead On the way there we lost Johnny He had opted for Bellevue instead Boy, I'm really glad you talked me into doing this Really, having a ball Yeah, yeah, I know, I know, I know That my hair is on fire Your face is melting. Did you know that? I don't know where the Ravi Shankar tape is. Well, I had to get out of that city. Bobby was bringing me down. Me and my darling young Susie said so long and drove out of town. Driving on acid is easy Driving on acid's a breeze Just keep the car on the highway Don't laugh and don't fart and don't sneeze Well, we got to my house in the country Yeah, the country, I like this The trees were all throbbing and green Susie was sure she had cancer I was sure I was James Dean We went down to the lake to go swimming Down to the lake for a swim Susie said water cures cancer I asked her to please call me Jim Yes, acid is usually dangerous the mild-mannered can quickly turn mean LSD can surely derange us Unless you possess Thorazine 
So the next time you want to go out there When you feel like feeding your head Think twice before dropping acid Hold out for mushrooms instead Mushrooms? Who said mushrooms? That was Loudon Wainwright III with the acid song. And before that, Mark Graham singing his classic, I Can See Your Aura. James Gordon is a singer-songwriter, lives in Guelph, Ontario, and this year he has ventured into the realm of politics. He's running as the NDP candidate in the Ontario election in Guelph. I'm not exactly sure how he's going to do in Guelph. That's not exactly traditional NDP territory. James Gordon is, however, one of the great writers of the country, and here he is with a brilliant song called Kelvinator. It was a great big brand new Kelvinator, first one on the street, came in the back of the Eaton's truck in the muggy August heat. We all gathered round to watch as Grandpa plugged it in. He announced when the light went on Now the new age begins Every day we used to head down To the corner grocer Local food from farmers we knew Mama said it made the neighbors closer That fridge it was so big We didn't have to go out every day You could buy frozen food that lasted And it came from far away The bigger stores with the stuff to fill it All were at the edge of town So after a while we moved there too The corner grocery had closed down That supermarket food and packages Would last for about a year Ever since we got that fridge Things sure are different around here Grandma stopped canning and preserving There was no point anymore There was fruit from California All year round at that giant store Besides when we moved to the suburbs We took all the best farmland We have to get our food from somewhere else It's all part of a global plan And the price of gas went up And my job, it got downsized Somewhere along the way We started to realize That we needed to think smaller More local to survive And the neighborhoods, they started To feel a little more alive Now I got a brand new refrigerator Not much more than a cubic foot Energy efficient And it's just big enough to put A day or two of groceries in it So it makes me get out and walk Down to that new corner grocer Me and the owner, we like to talk About a new way of living A new local plan I'm gonna get grandma to teach me How to put up peaches in cans 
And I took that big old Calvinator, put it on its back out in the yard, took off the door, filled it with soil, and planted me a little Swiss chard. When I sit in contemplation of the human situation, I often feel a certain sense of pride. For our achievements are many and mighty, and the evidence cannot be denied. But my reverie is shaken, because my thoughts are always taken to a tragedy that happened long ago. When there moved through the land, beings awesome and grand, the fabulous dinosaur. They were creatures in a manner quite reptilian, in their unique and stylish way. And their numbers could be reckoned in the millions, but there are zero of these heroes in the world today. They had music, art, and fashion. There was dinosauric passion, and I think they'd be enraged and mortified that when they're mentioned today, it's only to say their brains were small and they died. Became the agent of their premature demise Well, I understand that these things can happen So who are we to criticize When we'll spend most any price To have the ultimate device That ensures a perfect global suicide Well, I would venture instead That the humanoid head Is where the tinier brain resides and when we're gone, our works, they'll start to crumble Until nothing can be found In ten million years, some other guys may stumble On our fossils, and some fossil will begin to expound In some scientific study to his cockroach science buddies How the evidence can never be denied They were big, dumb, and slow They couldn't go with the flow their brains were small and they died. Their brains were small and they died. That was Mark Graham with Their Brains Were Small and They Died. And before that, James Gordon with Calvinator. That's it for this week, folks. See you next week. Solidarity. Well, that's our show for this week. Thanks for being with us. We'll be here next week at this time. If you would like to send us a comment, write to alert at canadiandimension.com. To hear this show again, or to hear any of our past shows, go to the Canadian Dimension website at canadiandimension.com and select alert. The show is also podcast on rabble.ca. The executive producer of Alert is Canadian Dimension publisher Saigonic. 
Technical producer is Andrew Valpi, assisted by Selena Sirik. Alert headlines by Ben Wood. Around the Left by Ashley Titterton. Music is the Weapon by Mitch Podolik. I'm Ashley Titterton. And I'm Michael Welch. Alert Radio is a production of Canadian Dimension magazine. 